Well, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 is where we have come in our study of Scripture together. The question we'll be dealing with today is who correctly understands, interprets, and applies the Jewish Scriptures, the Hebrew Old Testament, correctly? Is it the the Jewish rabbis who have passed down their teaching to today and what you have in rabbinic Judaism? Or is it Jesus Christ and his disciples and their understanding of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, that they have passed on to their followers who are known as Christians today? Who has the correct understanding of what God said through Moses, of what God said through Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of the prophets? What's the right way to read it? What are we supposed to do with it? How do we apply it? How does it affect our lives? That is the question that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in Romans 9, 10, and 11, particularly here in the last couple of weeks that we've been looking at the end of Romans chapter 9 and the beginning of Romans chapter 10. Paul's argument is that the Jewish people, whom he loves, his nation, his countrymen, have fundamentally misunderstood the purpose of the law. The instructions that God gave to Israel they have abused it, they have misused it, they have misapplied it. Paul's point is that they were never supposed to use God's law as a means of achieving blessings from God apart from trusting in God's power, his mercy, and his grace. That that is the fundamental issue, the fundamental disagreement between the rabbinic Judaism that the Apostle Paul was himself a key proponent of, perhaps the most zealous proponent of that Judaism, and the Christian position, the teaching of Jesus Christ on the law, that he is now espousing after his conversion. So let's take a look together at Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. I'll show you our outline for today. What we have contrasted here in Romans 10, 1 through 8 is two different approaches to a righteousness before God. That there is a pursuit of our own righteousness based upon fulfilling God's righteous requirements in the law, or there is a pursuit of a divine righteousness that is given by God through faith in the promises found in Jesus Christ. These are two approaches to try to attain righteousness before God. And Paul's thesis is that the Jewish people, in their pursuit of a law righteousness, have misused, misunderstood, and misapplied the Hebrew Scriptures. And that, in fact, the Word of God never intended for people to try to attain righteousness before God by keeping the law based upon their own works but that the law was always intended to rather show that people are sinners and that we have no righteousness of our own and that we can only have righteousness through trust, through faith in God who is able to justify the ungodly. That's the issue. You can see why this is such an important issue to the Apostle Paul. 
he starts off the chapter by talking about his heart's desire and his prayer to God for the Jewish people. He has been where they are. He himself has suffered much in trying to promote this understanding of faith righteousness at the hands of those who were pursuing law righteousness, just as the Lord Jesus Christ was persecuted, just as the original apostles were persecuted. So the Apostle Paul has suffered much to try to get this message out there to try to get religious people to understand how we can have a righteousness that is acceptable to God. So let's go ahead and read Romans 10, verses 1 through 8. Follow along in your Bibles as I read them out loud for us. And as we read them, and as we talk here in the next 45 minutes, my prayer is that God will feed his sheep, that I get to be a part of what God is doing, but through the Holy Spirit, you are going to be fed with God's word today. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, For righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. We have a wonderful text here. Some really interesting questions arise from the text. I hope to make it clear as we unpack it. So our outline, we're going to look at the first two verses and talk about zeal for God. That the Apostle Paul bears witness for the Jewish people on their behalf a good thing. They have zeal for God. But then Paul's going to talk about the goal of the law and how this zeal for God has not been used properly in order to use the law for the purpose for which God gave it in verses 3 and 4. And then in verses 5 through 8, he's going to make this comparison and contrast crystal clear by quoting from Moses and using Moses' words from Deuteronomy, contrasting law righteousness with faith righteousness. And that's where we're going. So let's go ahead and take a look at the first two verses together. Zeal for God, which is all about Paul's prayer for his Jewish brethren. Brothers, he's speaking here to his Christian brothers, some of whom would be Jewish, but many of whom would be Gentile. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So he's been talking about how they've stumbled over the stumbling stone there in the last verses of the previous chapter, how they have not succeeded in reaching that law. He's been saying things that are very offensive to the Jewish people, the types of things that Stephen got stoned for when Paul was standing by and watching the garments of those who were engaged in that act of murder. And so It's the same type of teaching that got Jesus crucified. And so when people hear a Jewish man like Stephen or Paul or Jesus saying these things about the Jewish people, they start to assume that the one who's saying it hates the Jews, that he's some kind of traitor to his people, that he's an anti-Semitic Jew. And this is, of course, something that 
Jews for Jesus still have to put up with today. Jewish Christians, Jewish believers in Jesus Christ are, are still looked at as somehow being traitors to their own people. And so Paul has to repeatedly emphasize that that is not at all his heart. And he does that here at the beginning of Romans chapter 10, just as he did at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. In fact, he said it much more strongly at the beginning of this section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, three chapters that go together. Go back to 9, verses 1 through 3. Remind you of what Paul said there. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. You see, people wouldn't believe what he's about to say. He has to say it with these repeated oaths. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Just as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, so the Apostle Paul weeps over the lostness of his people. And he goes so far as to say, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh. So just as he professed his deep love and concern for the Jewish people in opening this section, Paul feels the need to come back and reiterate that at the beginning of chapter 10 because of how much bias there would be against a Jewish person who would present the arguments and the position that Paul is presenting here in these chapters. Paul understands Judaism. Paul understands rabbinic Judaism. Better than any person alive today, Paul understood rabbinic Judaism in the first century. It blows my mind that there are scholars in the 20th century and the 21st century scholars who think they understand first century Judaism better than the Apostle Paul. And they'll read Paul and they'll say, oh, Paul was all wrong about what the Jews believed and what they understood. And and he's accusing them of this merit-based righteousness and really it wasn't about that at all, that they were just covenantal gnomists. And we come up with this terminology that confuses people and makes us sound scholarly so that we can contradict what the Bible says and scholars can presume to know more about first century Judaism than Paul, who was a first century Jew. And not just a first century Jew, but who was a student of Gamaliel, somebody who had been brought up and raised in all of this teaching. There was no prominent teacher of Judaism in Jerusalem that Paul did not talk with, that Paul did not discuss and debate and learn from. Paul knew Judaism. Make no mistake about that. Don't listen to any scholar that tells you otherwise. What a ridiculous position. And Paul, in his knowledge of the Jews, he not only knows it theoretically, but he knows it from personal experience because he believed everything that he was taught. He believed it wholeheartedly. He had this tremendous zeal for God and for the law that he's writing about. When he bears them witness that they have a zeal for God, he's not just talking about them, but he's talking about himself before he was a Christian. That he had that same zeal for God. Now, zeal for God is always a good thing. Don't think that this is some kind of backhanded commendation with some insult thrown in. No. Zeal for God is always, in the Bible, a great thing. You think of Phinehas in the Old Testament and how he stopped the plague against Israel because of their Baal worship at Peor. Think of the Maccabees and the heroes of the intertestamental period who in their zeal for God and zeal for the law rose up and fought an impossible war against the Greek invaders and cleansed the temple from all of the idolatry that Antiochus Epiphanes brought in. You think about Jesus 
cleansing the temple from the robbery that was taking place in its outer courts in his own day. And the Bible, quoting from the book of Psalms, says of Jesus, zeal for thy house has consumed me. A zeal for God is a a wonderful thing. And Paul and the Jews, they had a tremendous zeal for God. Paul is bearing them witness. Now, I think it's important for us to take note here that we who believe in TULIP, total depravity, is the first of those five points of Calvinism, we've got to be careful that we don't focus so much on the doctrine of total depravity that we don't give commendation when commendation is deserved. Sometimes you can focus so much on the evil that people are doing that you don't speak kindly to people. Here, the Apostle Paul, he knows that the Jewish people are evil. He writes about it in Philippians chapter 3, part of our scripture reading. When he was warning them about the dogs, when he was warning them about the evil workers, when he was warning about them who mutilate the flesh, well, who was he talking about? Well, he was talking about those who were falling in line with the teaching of rabbinic Judaism, who were trying to foist their interpretation of the law upon the Christian converts. And so Paul knows that this zeal for God is not altogether good, and that there's a lot of evil, and there's a time and a place for pointing out the evil of what false workers are doing, but there's also a time for pointing out what's good in people. And you say, well, Timothy, how can you say there's good in people? Don't you believe in total depravity? Of course I believe in total depravity. But here, the Apostle Paul, he weeps for his brothers. He doesn't just say, oh, they're totally depraved. They're such wicked sinners. Who could weep for such people? He doesn't just say, well, they have this zeal for God, but it's completely misguided, and and it really doesn't count for anything good. No. The Apostle Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. And God speaks respectfully. The Word of God speaks respectfully to people And we have to keep that in mind and not allow one doctrine to overshadow its counterpart in our practice. So look to the scriptures for your example in how you speak to people. Is there a time for sharp disagreement and for saying it like it is? Yes, of course there is. Is there a time for bearing witness on other people's behalf for good? Yes, there is. So this is a great counterpoint and a counterbalance to some other doctrines. Now, As Paul bears them witness that they have a zeal for God, I want to show you an example of him doing this in the book of Acts. Come to Acts chapter 22, verse 3. So right before Romans, we've got Luke's account of the early church, largely following the ministries of Peter and Paul. Peter in the opening chapters, Paul in the latter half of the book. And when we come to Acts chapter 22, we see Paul at one of his trials as, as Paul is defending himself. And here, he's not defending himself in front of the court, but instead he's defending himself to his Jewish people. He asks for an opportunity to speak to the crowd that was just about ready to beat him and stone him. And as he begins his defense, he says in verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, But brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So notice the camaraderie, the commonality that Paul seeks to establish with his Jewish brethren. Keep that in mind. And when you go out and you share the gospel with people, you want to find some common ground. You want to find some area where you can commend them. It's a great way 
to model what the apostles and Jesus Christ himself modeled for us. So Paul gets their attention. He rhetorically, not in a bad sense of the word, but in a right sense of the word, he gets them on his side as much as he can, or at least gets them to listen to him by pointing out and commending their zeal for God. So Paul did it in practice, just like he says he does in Romans chapter 9. All right, so come with me also to Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. After Romans, you've got Paul's letters to the Corinthians, first and second, and then his letter to the Galatians. Galatians is very similar in content to the book of Romans. Romans is fuller, more detailed, but Galatians has a lot of the same theology, a lot of the same doctrine that Paul is discussing. And here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes about his own experience in Judaism. We're talking about rabbinic Judaism the kind of Judaism that Jesus Christ confronted and had strong debates with. Paul writes in Galatians 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So this extreme zeal is Paul's own experience and he recognizes that same passion in the heart of his people. The passion that fomented the Maccabean revolt was still alive and well. There were Jewish people who were saying, we're not going to be conformed to the Greco-Roman culture. We're not going to give up our traditions. We're not going to give up the word of God, the commandments of God. We're not going to let their ethics take over. We're not going to allow our children to be trained in, in their thinking and in their philosophy. We're going to stick with the word of God. And that's good. But, It's also important to recognize that zeal is not enough. Zeal is good. You've got to have it. But you've got to have knowledge to go along with that zeal. Turn with me also to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. So Paul, towards the end of his life, he's doing different travels after he's been released from his Roman imprisonment. He leaves Timothy in Ephesus, and he writes a letter to Timothy to help him get things in order there in that church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, you see Paul's testimony about himself. Let's pick it up in verse 12 just to get the context. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. So notice what he says about himself. I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent. That's pretty strong language to talk about his former life. And he says this, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. A lot of the unbelief that takes place in our culture is stemming from ignorance. Now you look at somebody like the Apostle Paul and you say, well, if there was anybody who should not be ignorant of God, it's somebody who grows up learning the Bible from childhood from experts in the Bible. How can Paul say that he was acting ignorantly when he knew the Bible, he knew the Scriptures? He should have known better. And it's true, yeah, he should have known better. But notice the the grace of God, the mercy of God. That when God looked at the Apostle Paul, God didn't just say, 
Well, there's a violent aggressor, there's a persecutor, there's a blasphemer who hates Jesus Christ, and, and he should know better. No mercy for him. No. Notice that God says, I know you acted ignorantly in unbelief. And Jesus Christ, when he looked upon the people, the Jewish people, his nation, that he'd created, that he'd given the law, that he'd sent prophets to, John the Baptist, the latest of them, he looked at them and, and he had a heart for the people. He said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. So if you're going to err on one side or the other, err on being gracious. Err on giving people credit that they don't deserve. Yes, there's plenty of condemnation to be thrown around in Scripture, and you know that I'm not afraid to do that when the Bible does that. But here's the other side, okay? So we take it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we've got to put it all together and let the Scriptures balance us out. Take pity on those who are ignorant in their unbelief. Even some of those who you think, well, they, they should know better. They shouldn't be ignorant. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says he received mercy because he had acted ignorantly. Very interesting. All right. So all this to say, Paul understands Judaism. He knows about their zeal. He knows about their ignorance because he was there. And that's why God chose him to write these things that he's written in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 and in his other letters so that we can make sure to be also understanding these issues. We know that Jesus Christ and his followers have rightly understood and interpreted the Jewish scriptures and that when we follow in their line and in their teaching, we will not be acting ignorantly, but we'll be seeking God with a proper understanding of his truth. Very important, all right? So zeal for God and knowledge of God's will got to go together there in verses 1 and 2. Now, come back to Romans chapter 10. Paul bore witness for the Jewish people as I can bear witness for the Jewish people today, that they have a zeal for God. Not all Jews. Some Jews don't have any zeal for God, but a lot of Jews have a zeal for God. They're seeking after God in their way, not according to knowledge, as Paul says. And we want to have mercy on those who are ignorant in their unbelief. Now, pick it up then in verses 3 and 4. What kind of ignorance are we talking about here? What is the problem? Paul puts his finger on it in verse 3. They, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So they were ignorant of righteousness. They didn't understand God's righteousness because they hadn't understood what the law was revealing about God's righteousness. And they were ignorant about how to establish righteousness because they thought that they had a righteousness of their own. Paul was in this same situation. Once again, Paul understands Judaism. Come with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, where we had our scripture reading. This revelation, this understanding of the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus in contrast to the righteousness of the rabbis, the righteousness of the scribes, the righteousness of the Pharisees, being able to see the righteousness in Jesus Christ in comparison with man's righteousness, 
is what made all the difference for Paul. In fact, in one scripture, Paul says his salvation was God revealing his son in me. When God revealed his son in me, he had a personal revelation of who Jesus Christ is, the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And that made his righteousness appear for what it was. Worthless. Dirty rags, as the scripture says. When he saw the righteousness of God, then he realized that everything he had been doing was not what he needed, but that he needed this righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ. All right, so Philippians chapter 3. After speaking about the dogs, the evildoers, as we mentioned, he goes on and talks about himself and how he himself was all involved with this system for the first half of his life. He says, I have reason, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, for confidence in the flesh. And when he says confidence in the flesh, what he means is a man-made righteousness by trying to keep the law of God as interpreted by the scribes and the Pharisees, that rabbinic Judaism. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, you can put the best follower of the Jewish rabbis on the stage next to me, Paul says, and I've got more to boast about than he does. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, there's our word, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Well, that's quite a statement to make. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Nobody could point out anything in the Apostle Paul's life and say, you're not living according to the teaching of the rabbis. You're not living according to the traditions that have been handed down to us. Gamaliel, looking at his student Paul, says, you're doing it, Paul. Keep up the good work. You're right there in what we're teaching you to do. Now, as Paul explains his standing in the flesh, as he calls it, notice what happens next. Verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So when he compared what he had with what he could get from Christ, he's like, I don't want this anymore. That's what I want. And he had put a lot of time and effort into getting this. But now this didn't mean anything to him anymore because his eyes had been opened. Jesus Christ had been revealed in him. And so he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself in my sermon here, but we're already in Philippians chapter 3, so we might as well just keep going. And he said in verse 9, his goal in life was to be found in him. No longer was his goal in life to live up to the teachings of rabbinic Judaism to be the premier example of, of a Jew following in the traditions of his teachers. That was no longer the goal of his life, which he was very zealous for. But now he became equally or more zealous for this righteousness that is not my own. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, this law righteousness. But now what he's looking for is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
That's the contrast here. That's the difference. So Paul wrote Philippians 3, and he wrote Romans chapter 10, and he wrote Galatians chapter 3, and all of this works together to help us understand this concept of law righteousness versus faith righteousness. So what we're talking about here is the ignorance of the Jewish people in Romans 10. They didn't know about this righteousness of God. And this righteousness of God, you could equate with the salvation of God, with the grace of God, with Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the salvation of God, who is the grace of God, who is the righteousness of God for us. God, my righteousness. That was one of the titles for God in the Old Testament. God is my righteousness. I don't have a righteousness of my own. That's the key. So they were ignorant of this salvation, righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, and they were seeking to establish their own. And so they did not submit to God's righteousness. And this leads us into verse 4, the goal of the law. Now, verse 4 is one of those verses that is much discussed and has different interpretations and even different translations. What we have here in the ESV is a very literal translation, but I think it's actually a little bit misleading. So in this case, very rarely, you won't hear me do this often, I'm going to praise the NIV translation and say I prefer the NIV here to the ESV. Why is that? Well, because in translating this literally in an ambiguous way, I think it leads to confusion and a lot of misunderstanding on the verse. And so this is one case where I'd like it if they were a little less ambiguous and literal and a little bit more interpretive in their translation. Oh well, call me inconsistent. So what we have in the Revised Standard Version, I can praise that one too because it's, it takes a very similar approach as the NIV. In the Revised Standard Version, which was also, by happy coincidence, the translation I really liked for Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which I keep flashing up on the screen for us throughout this study of Romans. Well, the RSV translators also got Romans 10, 4 right. It says there, Christ is the end of the law that everyone who has faith may be justified. Notice the comma after the law. But if you're reading in the ESV, look at it. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's no comma there. And so the ESV translation leads you to think that for righteousness is attached to the law, which is grammatically possible. It's nothing that in the Greek text that would say that you can't attach for righteousness with the law. But in the Greek text, law comes first in the sentence, and then you've got Christ at the end of that beginning phrase, and then you've got a preposition, ice, which means into. And it can be translated for, like it's translated here, and that's the easiest way to translate it. It's the most ambiguous way to translate it into the English, and so it doesn't really take a position on how it's supposed to be interpreted. But in this case, because they put law and then for righteousness, it gives you the idea that Christ is the end of the law only for this one particular aspect, this one particular purpose. That people will read this verse, and, and good commentators, good preachers will take this position, and I think it's wrong, but you know, it's, it's not a tragic error, it's just a small one. But I think the error here is saying, well, God did intend the law to be a means to attain righteousness for a time period, and then Christ came, and now no longer is the law the means to attain righteousness, but faith in Christ is the means to attain righteousness. And that's not what Paul's saying. 
I don't think theologically that's Paul saying. I don't think grammatically that's what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying here is, is well represented in the RSV translation. Christ is the end of the law. That's a complete thought. So that, ice here has purpose. It's, it's a preposition that can be used to denote purpose. For a purpose. And the purpose is, is that everyone who has faith may be justified. That righteousness is for everyone who believes because Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the goal of the law. Now the word here for end is a, an important Greek word. It's one that means a goal or a finish line. The word is telos. We use it in telescope. And a telescope helps you to, to see to the end of something. You look through the telescope and you can look to the end. Now, telos can mean purpose, like the goal. And I think that's the idea here, that the law was given with a purpose. The law was given with a goal. How do I know that's the correct interpretation of telos here in Romans chapter 10, verse 4? Well, I think Galatians chapter 3 is a great passage for helping us understand Paul's logic here because in Galatians chapter 3, Paul's making the same type of argument. He's talking about law righteousness versus faith righteousness. And there, in Galatians chapter 3, we'll get there eventually, if maybe next week, Paul talks about how the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. And so the law was given for a purpose. It was to lead us to someone to some place, and the goal, the end that God gave the law as a tutor was to lead us to Christ. I think that's the idea that Paul is encapsulating here in a rather brief phrase that Christ is the end of the law. The law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. So Paul is often teaching this, and Jesus was teaching this same thing, that the law was pointing to Christ. The law was to get people ready for Christ. The law was to show that we're sinners and we need a Savior. And so when the Savior came, we were supposed to embrace the Savior. That was the whole point. But the Jewish people missed the point. Why? Because they were ignorant of God's righteousness. And they thought they were establishing their own righteousness. And so, I don't need a Savior because I'm keeping the law. And Jesus comes along and says, no, you're not keeping the law. You think you're keeping the law, but you're not keeping the law. Let me give you some examples. Let me show you some illustrations of how you're not keeping the law. And that was a lot of the teaching of Jesus Christ was showing the Jewish people that they were not keeping the law, that they had abused the law, that they had twisted the law, that they had brought God's high standards down to a level that they could attain if they devoted their life to it, the way the Apostle Paul devoted his life to it. And so he says, look, I'm blameless according to the law as interpreted by the Jewish rabbis. Right? But once Paul saw himself in light of the righteousness of God, which is what the law was really given to show us, then he saw, I don't have a righteousness of my own. I'm the chief among sinners. I need a Savior. And God's mercy and grace abounded to me because I was chief amongst the sinners. So you see here Paul's logic and reasoning. Christ is the end of the law, comma, so that righteousness might come to everyone who believes. That's Romans chapter 10, verse 4. So we've talked about zeal for God. We've talked about the goal of the law. Now let's wrap it up here in verses 5 through 8, looking at how Paul uses Deuteronomy, Moses' writings, to contrast law and faith, law righteousness and faith-based righteousness. Verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. 
Stop there. So Moses wrote that the one who does the commandments shall live by them. This is a true statement. We've made this point throughout Romans. Jesus Christ constantly reiterated this. The Old Testament constantly reiterated this. The law does clearly state that if you can keep the law, you can have righteousness and all the blessings that God gives to the righteous person. Now, he's quoting here from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Leviticus 18, 5 says, You therefore shall keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. It's repeated throughout the Old Testament. It's repeated in Leviticus. It's repeated in Deuteronomy. It's reiterated almost verbatim in Ezekiel chapter 20 in several verses and also in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 29. So before the exile, after the exile, from Moses to Nehemiah, God does say that if you keep the law, you can be righteous. But God said that only in order to show people that they can't keep the law and they can't be righteous through that means. So they had misunderstood why God had said what he had said, what the purpose for that statement was. God never intended people to gain from that statement the idea that I can do this. But they were always supposed to get the idea, I can't do this. It reminds me of a great story told by missionaries. They went to a tribal people on an island who had never heard the Christian message before, were not acquainted with scripture in any way. And so when they got there, they knew that if they just started teaching about Jesus Christ right away, that the people wouldn't understand, that they would just syncretize their own pagan beliefs, their own animism, believing in spirits and their shamans and things like that. They would just put that together with the message of Jesus and form some kind of evil mixture that would not result in salvation. So the missionaries were wise enough to know, we've got to start in Genesis. We've got to teach about the God who created heaven and earth. And we've got to teach about God's law and the Ten Commandments and his chosen people. And we've got to teach about the Passover sacrifice. And we've got to lead up to Jesus Christ so that once we start teaching about why Jesus Christ came and why he died, they've got some frame of reference as to what God has been doing that has led to this point. Very wise. And as they were teaching through the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the tribal people who were interested in the message, who were listening, were saying, we're going to do it. All right? We're going to obey all God's commandments. They were just like the people of Israel when they heard it. All that the Lord has said, we're going to do. You know, before we didn't know about God's commandments. Now we know. Now we're going to do it. And, uh, you know, so the, the missionaries came back and met with them a week later, and all the men were just downhearted. They were devastated. They're just like, man, we are in big trouble. Now we know God's commandments and we still don't do them. And that's why God gave the law. They got it. God was working in their heart, in their life, showing them through the law that they were not law keepers. And it's only by distorting and twisting the law that you can fool yourself into thinking that you are a law keeper. And so when the message of Jesus Christ was preached to them, they believed and received it with joy because they knew they were sinners and the law had tutored them to Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. The law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. So Moses did say, do it and you'll live. But the right response is, I haven't done it. I need grace and mercy. I need a Savior. So that's what Paul talks about here following. He says, 
Moses wrote about the law, the righteousness is based on the law, that if you do it, you'll live by it. But, verse 6, the righteousness based on faith speaks otherwise. It says thus. And I wish they would have put the thus in the translation because without inputting the thus, which is in the text, in the Greek, you get the idea that Paul is directly quoting and exegeting, that is that he's bringing out the meaning of what Moses originally said. But that's not what Paul is doing here. Okay? Not every quotation from the Old Testament in the New Testament is the New Testament writer saying, let me tell you what Moses meant when he said this. That's not everything that the Bible does with the Bible. Sometimes the New Testament writers are adapting language from the Old Testament and creatively using it in a new way, in a new situation, to apply to a different situation. So there's a difference between interpretation and application, and there's a difference between quoting something when you're trying to communicate what it originally meant and just using the words from something and putting new meaning into them. And that's really what Paul is doing here. He doesn't say, Moses wrote about this message of faith that I'm talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 30. No. Who's the one who is speaking here? Notice what Paul says. He says, the righteousness based on faith says. So it's not Moses that says this. It's not Deuteronomy that says this. It's the righteousness based on faith that says this. And, and it doesn't even say says this. It's, it speaks thus would be a more accurate translation of how Paul introduces this quotation. Now, I give you that warning because we're going to go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 and you're going to say, well, that's not what Moses was talking about at all. And you're right, that's not what Moses was talking about. Paul is doing something creative here. Come back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. You see, the Bible is not a simple book. There's simple concepts that people can understand, but but there's complexity here. And the message is built on foundations. It starts with your ABCs, and it moves forward into more complex concepts, just like our education when we're children. Remember how I talked about how the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ? That you can't just go straight to Christ, you've got to go through the tutor to get some concepts and ideas that help you to understand the more complex concept. And so, God, working through the nation of Israel, was creating concepts and ideas that he was going to utilize later, adding more information and more complex ideas based upon the simple. So we have a relatively simple idea that Moses is writing about in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And now as we continue forward thousands of years, 1,500 years, to the time where Paul's writing Romans, God has revealed a lot more. He's put a lot more nuance and layers and complexity of understanding. So now God expects people to be able to understand things, not just at this you know, first grade level, but you know, now we're in the eighth grade and we can, we can deal with more complex concepts. So let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 a, a little bit in its context. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, let's pick it up there in verse 11. Moses was speaking to the people. He is this kind of the end of his long sermon, exhorting the people to keep the commandments of God. And he says, This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it down to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is near you, very near you. 
It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. I say, well, hold on, hold on a second. I thought Paul was teaching that you can't do it. Now Moses is saying you can do it. Which one is it? Can you do it or can you not do it? Moses was telling the people, you don't have to do some superhuman feat in order to know God's will. People often get that false idea that the answers to ultimate questions are almost impossible to discover the secret. What's the meaning of life? Where did the universe come from? What is, you know, right and wrong? And people just pretend like these are, are such difficult questions that nobody really knows the answer to. And God says, I haven't made it that difficult. I've given you revelation. I've given you my word. You don't have to figure these things out. You just have to trust me. That was the message of Moses to the people in his day. And you know what? It's true. What Moses said was true. You don't have to be some kind of superhuman and go on some supernatural journey in order to discover the mysteries of truth. God says, here it is. I've laid it all out for you. Just do it. And in one sense, they should be able to do it. God expects people to be able to do what's right. We are created in the image and likeness of God. We're created with a rational mind, with an ethical soul. And when God has revealed himself, and he's revealed what's right, and he's told us what's right, and he's going to reward what's right, and he's going to punish what's wrong, then you should be able to do what's right. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to. You can't blame God for it. That's the point here. And as Jewish history unfolds, and you see that the Jewish people did not do it, and they did not keep it, it wasn't because God had made it too difficult. It was because they were obstinate sinners. That's the point. And so Paul's going to take this thought that's here, and he's going to repurpose it. He's going to put it into the mouth of the message of faith that Jesus Christ came preaching, that the Apostle Peter was preaching, that Paul was entrusted with. And what does the message of faith say? The message of faith says, you, today, you don't have to take some magical chariot ride up into the sky in order to bring down heavenly truth. Heavenly truth has come down. You don't have to take some mystical journey down into the bottoms of death in order to bring up the profound truth. God has brought up Jesus Christ from the dead. And he has delivered this truth to you. He's delivered this message to you. And all you have to do is believe. The word is near you. The word is in your mouth. It's in your heart. Everyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, everyone who believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. This is a message for everyone, everywhere. God has brought the truth to us. It's our responsibility to believe it.